0: Uh, welcome to A Life in Biography. I'm here again with Timothy Christian, uh, whose book on Mary Hemingway uh, is going to be published soon, and Carol Sklenica, uh, who's done biographies of Raymond Carver and Alice Adams. Uh, you probably know, if you were with us last week, that we are continuing the conversation. We felt it went so well, this may turn into a mini series. So I'm going to turn it over to Tim.
1: Well, thanks very much, Carl. I really appreciate uh, the guest hosting gig. Uh, Today, of course, we're going to dive deeper into the mechanics of biography, if I can put it that way, with Carol Sklenica and Carl Rawlison. Thank you both for your insights into biography writing and for sharing the stories of how you became attracted to biography as a literary form. Before we begin with a fresh set of questions about the mechanics of biography, uh, now you've had a chance to think about what we talked about last week. Do you wish to add anything to, to what you said, then, Carol, let's start with you. Listeners will recall that Carol Sklenick is the acclaimed biographer of the American authors Raymond Carver, A Writer's Life, 2009, and Alice Adams' Portrait of a Writer, 2019. Carol, is there anything that you would like to add to what we chatted about last week?
2: Well, something occurred to me as I was mulling over the things Carl said about his fascination with history and how that was rooted in some of his own experience as a young man and also his uh, practice as an actor. But um, I realized that one reason I'm so interested in biography is that I was an only child of older parents. And I always had this great curiosity about how other people lived, because it was evident through my schoolmates that that their families were quite different from mine. But uh, beyond that, you know, I really didn't know how to acquire that kind of information except through reading. So reading became you know my way of experiencing other lives, and I think it just continued on into biology.
3: Huh.
2: It's been uh, an interesting thing because I—I mean, I do think I have more curiosity about, about people, not just gossip. I don't mind gossip, but uh, you know, how do how do people and families uh, find a way to live? You know, that's always fascinated me.
1: Right, and and Carol, I, I understand that uh, uh, you you're prepared to read uh, from your work today for us. Could you could you tell us what uh, what you're about to read and 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 set it up for us, please?
2: Sure, and then go ahead and do that now. Correct?
1: Yes, please.
2: Okay. Um, well, I was thinking about the mechanics of biography. There's a, a kind of mystery to it, even though we can go through all the separate aspects Uh, to me the mystery is when it all begins to come together in the writing Um, in the Raymond Carver biography I was often uh, first from students faced with the question of how did this guy from Yakima Washington whose father was a alcoholic sawmill worker how how did he become this renowned writer and uh You know, in a way, it's an unanswerable question, but I finally put together some things that uh, that answered it sufficiently for me in the book. Um, And it was something that was very unfamiliar to me, which was his love of hunting. And I want to read a section. It's less than a page. And then I'll just talk briefly about uh, some of the things that went into that to give you an idea of how complicated writing a biography can be. Um, So it's uh, the end of chapter three in that book, the Raymond Carver book. Killing birds in the beautiful, inhospitable terrain of the Columbia River Basin as an adolescent helped release Ray from the anxieties of his childhood and gave him the temerity he needed to become a writer. So that's just kind of section I won't read where I analyze one of his poems very closely. It takes a couple paragraphs and you haven't read the poems, so I won't read that part, but it's part of my argument. Then a new section at the barber shop and elsewhere, Ray read outdoor magazines, field and stream, outdoor life, sports afield alongside black and white ads for guns and ammo, gear, and uranium discovery instruments, between full-color pages, hawking cigarettes, liquor, and correspondence courses in taxidermy, correspondence courses in taxidermy, also in writing. I don't know why I didn't put that there. It's somewhere else in the book. Ran columns of well-crafted articles and personal narratives Ray began writing down some of the events that had befallen him with his friend Frank Sandmeyer, his dad, and others. Among Carver's papers, is an undated typescript called A Little Sturgeon. It details how to catch one of those huge fish in the Columbia River by wading the bait with heavy metal objects like bolts and railroad spikes. It describes his dad with other men drinking whiskey and coffee from a thermal. Carver's notebooks hold many ideas carried over from those days. Sandmeyer recalled the conversation when Ray mentioned his writing ambitions. On a bright cold morning in the mid-1950s, Ray shot three geese before they came back to the car to eat lunch and warm up. As they sat talking, Sandmeyer noticed that Ray was more fidgety and nervous than usual. Finally, he said, Ray said, and this is quoted from Frank Sandmeyer. I'm kind of disappointed. I wrote a story and it didn't sell. And I said, well, what did you write? And he said, I wrote a story about this wild country, the flight of the wild geese and hunting the geese. It's not what appeals to the public, they said. I'll have to try something else. Tentative as it sounds, this was a declaration hunting and fishing and family and friends would no longer be the center of Ray's life. He had revised the terms of his engagement with the world from now on with one baleful exception, he would live to write. Mm -hmm. Um, And just briefly, uh, what went into that was my opening statement, then the exegesis of the poem Then the context of the magazines and so forth. And, you know, I probably spent half a day reading those old magazines in a library on microphone. Uh, Then an unpublished manuscript, which was very revealing, the thing about the sturgeon. Uh, The interview with the old man, Frank Sandmeyer. And then again, the conclusion I reached from pulling together all those details. So... um, I just wanted to read that because I think the way you braid information together is as important as as having the information.
1: Yeah. I think that's a masterful job you've done there. You, one has a very strong sense of of Ray and the people he's with and the, and the way he sees the world and how he sees that writing is a way to escape in some ways from a circumstances. Carl, how about you? Um, Uh, You, of course, have written uh, 14 important biographies, and you are rightly regarded as the nation's preeminent scholar on the history and theory of biography. Uh, Do you have anything to add to the answers you shared last week?
0: Well, I was listening to Carol. Uh, I don't remember what I said last week. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't listened to our our (laughs) podcast. But I am responding to Carol, something that occurred to me in terms of why I became a biographer. One of the things I noticed that I was a very peculiar kid, I think, uh, at least among the kids I knew when I was growing up, in that I was very interested in old people. I liked to listen to old people. Uh, and most of the, certainly my relatives, the other kids uh, in my cousins and so on, they seemed to think old people were boring uh, and I used to play pinochle with my grandmother and was very close to her the same way that Sylvia Plath was close to her grandparents. And at one point after my father died, uh, I lived with my grandparents. And I think that sense of, of, um, uh, of older people of, of age to someone who, who is just sort of coming into the world, for me anyway, was was somehow galvanizing. I found that very um, comforting and intriguing. And I think that's somewhere back in, you know, it has to be factored into my development uh, as a biographer.
1: Hmm. So an interest in other people's stories from an early age and an yeah. interest in what older people had to say. Yeah. Now, Carl, I, I believe that you have something to share with us from your work in progress, uh, the making of Sylvia Plath. Th- uh, that's you- right. Yeah, you've already published two biographies about Sylvia Plath. American Isis, The Life and Art of Sylvia Plath from 2014. And then more recently, just last year, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath. So what more can we learn about the famous author?
0: Yes, I can imagine people listening to this say, what's wrong with him? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's already done two books. Can he get it right? Uh, the The... the I guess what I'd say about that is, although, you know, people read biographies, and it looks like a finished form, with a beginning, a middle and an end, and so on, uh, at least for some biographers, at least for this biographer, you keep thinking about the subject, you you think about things mm-hmm. you might have put in the book, or things that you cut out of the book, mm-hmm. or because you wrote the book, you know, with my books on Plath, American Isis, it has a certain. Th- Theme. It has a certain through line, mm-hmm. uh, and I adhere to that, which means, of necessity, you leave certain things out. Um, and I, uh, in working on uh, a book called Sylvia Plath Day by Day, which I'm working sort of alongside the making of Sylvia Plath, I'm discovering all sorts of things about her childhood and really about the first two-thirds of her life. She died when she was 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, And this new book is going to be a relatively short biography because part of what I'm trying to do is weight those first two thirds of her life, which are vitally important, um, almost like mine is in terms of her sense of history and -hmm. her sense of historical context. She had a very strong sense of that, of her her family's ties to Europe, for example, Mm -hmm. very important in her development. Uh, the piece I'm going to read has not been published. It is part of the making of Sylvia Plath. It's it's about her month in New York in June 1953. She's a guest editor at Mademoiselle along with um, several other young women. Mm-hmm. A very, very highly prized uh, uh, assignment uh, for college undergraduates who had aspirations to go into publishing or writing or Uh, the entertainment industry, even the fashion industry as well. Mm -hmm. New York was a kind of magnet for all these things. She goes with these tremendous high hopes, uh, with a sense of how privileged she is to have this experience. It's a very intense uh, month, June. Uh, She goes home, and uh, a lot of the young women like her who had this month in New York and then went home uh, to other parts of the country, there was a real letdown. Uh, it, it, some were like Plath, became depressed. And the incredible thing about Sylvia Plath is, after this New York high, so to speak, she goes home in July and begins to fall into a deep depression. And such that by uh, August 24th, she attempts to take her life. It's not successful. Her brother actually finds her in the space of their home. Anyway, I'm going to read a little bit about this uh, June in New York. And what I'm trying to do is to show that it's, this month happened to her, but it didn't just happen to her. Um, And she was going through a kind of passage in her life, um, which other young women were at the same time. And I'm trying to counter the idea that she's simply some kind of suicidal personality. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I I'm in some some ways building on the work of Heather Clark, whose mammoth Plath biography that came out recently also attempts to put her in a kind of historical context. Mm -hmm. So this is the way I begin. On June 3rd, 1953, Sylvia gave her mother an accounting of her first three exhausting and exhilarating days in New York City. She began with describing the exquisite Barbizon, Barbizon Hotel. That's where she stayed and all the guest editors stayed. She describes the green lobby, light uh, cafe au lait woodwork, plants, etc. The elevator whooshed her up to room 1511. Green wall-to-wall rug, pale beige walls, I'm quoting her. Dark green bedspread with rose-patterned ruffle. Matching curtains, a desk, bureau closet, and white enamel bowl growing like a convenient mushroom from the wall, bath, shower, toilet, a few doors down the hall, radio in wall, telephone by bed, and the view, she says, with an exclamation mark. She was um, fashion conscious, attention to, she was an artist, she, she uh, drew, she was very, very sensitive to her environment, mm-hmm. And picked up all kinds of cues and details, which I'm trying to show in this passage. Mm-hmm. From her window, she looked down on gardens, alleys, the Third Avenue elevated train, the United Nations, and the snatch of the East River, her words. From her desk at night, a network of lights and the sound of car horns serenaded her with the sweetest music, I love it. She seemed pleased with her fellow guest editors, attractive and well turned out. They had already been to Richard Hudnut for their hairdos and makeup. Only a nosebleed at breakfast spoiled her fun. She was surprised not to be named fiction editor, but claimed she loved being managing editor, that is, guest managing editor, because of the all-inclusive work. Perhaps at first this was so, but the demands of the job would soon drain her. Her letters home reflect a narrowing of ambition as she pinned all her hopes on getting into Frank O'Connor's Harvard Summer School short story course, She wanted to take that right after this month in New York. Exactly why she thought this course was so crucial to her development as a writer is not entirely clear, but it seems that she regarded him, that is O'Connor, as her contact with the wider world of publishing and professional writing that she had first encountered with Val Gendron. This was a uh, kind of pulp magazine story writer that she visited during one of her summer jobs to learn about the publishing industry. Sylvia wanted to work every day on her fiction. And it seemed that the O'Connor course would not only structure these writing days, but give her the feedback that went beyond the rejection slips. She was getting lots of rejection slips, even though she had already been published uh, in national magazines. Mm -hmm. Uh, They included words about her writing, uh, but uh, I'm I'm adding here to, to what I wrote. Um, she'd get these re- rejection slips, usually they didn't say anything, occasionally they'd say, nice try, send, send something else, and that would be about it. She wanted a real professional to go over her work and, and tell her what the weaknesses and hopefully some of the strengths were. She writes to a boyfriend, to Myron Lotz. She writes about staying at the hotel. She calls it a hotel for circumspect young women. This is the Barbza. It was also the site where women from everywhere, it seemed, came to start an entirely new life, as Paula Brann, a historian of the Barbizon, puts it, and take fate in her own hands. Circumspect meant that the Barbizon was a sanctuary, a place of protection against the men who prowled about seeking to get past the front desk, which was as watchful as what Plath had experienced at Smith. Now, I have to explain that. Watchful at Smith. What I mean is, they actually had, and I started to learn this from her diaries. You could, you had to, as a scholarship student—that's what she was. Part of your scholarship duties was being on watch. That is, there was a front desk in her residence hall, and you checked, you know, in and out uh, the traffic, the, the, the students coming in and out of the building. So something like this, in a way, was was happening to her in New York. This was the domicile of aspirants to to fame in the worlds of fashion, art, acting, and publishing and established in cahoots, in fact, with Betsy Talbot Blackwell, editor-in-chief of Mademoiselle to chaperone these young women into success. This was heady stuff for out-of-town hopefuls, some of whom succumbed to the stress. Lonely enough, Bren reports, to commit suicide, often on Sunday mornings, perhaps after the pressures of the week and a Saturday night date failed to materialize or had gone wrong, leading to the Sunday of sorrow. The bell jar recounts the disastrous efforts of young women to break out to discover New York on their own before returning what was called uh, a secular nunnery, that is the Barbizon. In the 1950s, New York, without a male companion, that was a restricted experience. Being a woman alone, without a date, limited where you could go and what you could do, Bren writes. This was a time when a woman woman could not walk into a bar alone without exciting the suspicion that she was there for trade. And don't forget those women were contestants, that is those guest editors, having competed for the select group of 20 guest editors, women that Plath uh, contracted in her novel, into the biblical 12, apostles of a star formation, which had the guest managing editor at the apex, that's Plath, at the apex of a mademoiselle group photograph. Plath was expected to play the role of working woman, so often assigned to the astringent Eve Arden in Hollywood films. One of the reasons I bring in Eve Arden uh, is because I know Plath watched her films. I know that Eve Arden was sort of the quintessential image of the career woman in many Hollywood movies. Mm -hmm. Sylvia would not in the main be writing. The Plath who had shied away from elective office in school and the administrative roles that would have sapped the energy for writing now had to direct the traffic of talent. I'm going to stop there. I could go on, but... I want to really uh, what I go on to do is really talk about the mounting pressures uh, of being in this managing editor role. She learned a lot, as she says in her letters, but the sort of the hurly burly, the hectic and frantic deadline pace of it really got to her by the end of the month.
1: The thing, Carl, about uh, what you've read and, and what I've read in your other biographies of Sylvia Plath is what a uh, determined and self-aware person she was. I I didn't have that sense of her before I read your work, that she was a, a person uh, who had very lofty goals for herself. She was very determined and uh, she uh, she wanted to succeed. And in what you've read today, you uh, one gets the sense of the challenges that she faced during that period at the Barbizon Hotel, and how she, how she uh, overcame some of the challenges.
0: Yes, yes, she was, she was all that. She was very self-conscious. Um, what I think people sometimes miss about Sylvia Plath is uh, they think of her as entirely self-absorbed.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but when you read The Bell Jar, or when you read certain journal passages, you see that she was acutely conscious of the rest of the world. I didn't read a passage when she, she gets really upset when one of these guest editors mentioned that the, the following evening uh, the Rosenbergs were going to be executed right. for spying. Uh, and Sylvia Plath is distraught and contemptuous of this young woman who knows nothing better, who doesn't really understand what the taking of a, a human life is. It, it It physically upsets her. Um, She had, as I say, this this connection to history that that many of her contemporaries simply did not have.
1: Right, as I recall, the other young woman said that she was glad they were executed. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Plath quotes that in her journal, and there's something. There's a similar scene that occurs in *The Bell Jar*. That's right.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, thank you for that. Uh, Thank you both for for reading. Those those are great passages. now I'd like to turn to uh, some of the more mechanical issues, if we can describe them that way, in biography writing. And the first, uh, the first question I want to raise is, um, should biographers uh, seek permission to, quote, published or unpublished material from copyright holders, or should they rely on the doctrine of fair use? Carol, let's begin with you. What's, what's your practice with respect to uh, seeking permission?
2: Well, I think I mentioned that when I began the Carver biography, I was quite naive and uh, I thought I would be able to get permission. And I assumed that that's what you did. I'd written a book about D.H. Lawrence and gone through his agent and estate and paid some small amount of money to negotiate a small amount and paid it. And I just thought that was how it was. Uh, I found out as I went along with Carver that there was no way the estate was going to give me permission. And uh, luckily I found a publisher that that didn't have an issue with using fair use and supporting me strongly in that. And of course I learned a lot about it too. Uh, yeah. So we, we used we did as much as we could under fair use. My publisher was, allowed me to be as bold as possible and I, the publisher's legal department looked over and questioned me, and uh, I also actually bought insurance through the or there was another group writers' union at that time. I'm not sure it survived, but I did have some kind of insurance for a few years there. Well, uh, because I turned out I had a very a hostile estate. So.
1: Right, we're going to talk so, about you
2: it. You know, so I'm, uh, what, what I'm saying is it depends. Yeah. If you, can get, if you think you can get the permission and it's not going to be expensive and a lot of trouble, then by all means you should get it if you're talking about a writer because you want to be able to use as much of the work as you need to, especially if it's a poet because it gets really restrictive with lines of verse. Uh, but but if you can't, you can't. And there, and fair use is wonderful, and and it, we need to use it and make sure that it it remains part of our legal system. I believe it's a bit different in Britain, and it may be different in Canada.
1: Uh, yeah, it's somewhat different, but I I think that uh, the 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 concept uh, is uh, it, it's stated differently, but uh, the same idea applies uh, generally. Um, now, Carl, I know that you have a pretty, uh, pretty strong view on on fair use, and uh, why don't you just blast away? I've always <laughs> I, I like I like your courageous position on it.
0: Yes, I have a very robust view of fair use. Uh, I'm not alone in this. Uh, many, many lawyers will support what I'm about to say to uh, to listeners, um, and I should say that I drafted the principles of fair use. Uh, which is now part of the the Biographers International website. You can go there to look for fair use. I don't mean at all that I'm the sole author. I just mean I sort of got it started. I wrote a draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ann Heller, a number of attorneys, a number of members of bio, certainly had their input as well. Um, The the important point uh, about fair use, and I'm really talking about in terms of biography, uh, is uh, in this comes from um, a number of, of lawyers who have used such a term. Um, fair use is not not something you're getting permission for; it's your right. Mm-hmm. Uh, fair right. use. Uh, and the other thing that lawyers will say, uh, who who really know the law, is that biography is a transformational work. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that, and I want to put it that way, because there's still a lot of publishers who don't seem to understand this, Um, partly because they're nervous that they're going to get sued, of course. So a lot of what I'm saying, uh, uh, publishers may disagree with, not because they're right, but because they're wrong. Um, But they're going to go ahead and insist it anyway, because they want to stay out of what they think, stay out of trouble, but they're really eroding fair use. Um, Transformational. Uh, this, this uh, came into play, for instance, when I was doing American ISIS and I dreaded the legal reading because I did quote from Plath mm-hmm. uh, sparingly from her poetry, two, three lines at a time, much more from her journals and much more from her letters.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And the, uh, the attorney was Ellis Levine, who's a, a poet as well as an attorney. And to my amazement, when he went through my book um, before it was published, uh, he didn't ask me to take out a single thing that I had quoted. Hmm. The only changes that Ellis made in the book was, he said, now you've got this quotation from Plath. He said, you've got to do more of an introduction and you've got to do something coming out of the quotation. You've got to make it yours, by which he meant you're transforming it right you're not just using it to report material you're this is value added he said right. because if this were ever to go into court this is what you would point to that you're transforming this now if you take this idea of transformation seriously various rules of the road that publishers have have been uh, telling authors for decades are just are just a load of hootie. For instance, a publisher may say to a biographer, well, uh, you're doing an unauthorized biography. You have a hostile state as Carol. I faced a lot of hostile states and Carol has her experience with them too. Publisher might say, well, you can only quote 300 words. Well, that's just malarkey. Mm-hmm. I mean, the novel might be 90,000 or 100,000 words and you're limited 300, oh no. I did a two-volume biography of Faulkner. If you look at that, there's lots of quotation.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Not only is there a quotation, but I, rep- I reproduced some of his drawings, and I did not ask for permission. Why not? I went over this with attorneys, not publishers' attorneys, but just other attorneys versed in copyright. And he said, "Well, are you commenting on this photograph? How old is the and a photograph, this drawing? How old is it?" They asked a number of questions. They said, "You're okay." That doesn't mean that somebody might not have sued me or the publisher. You never know. People can bring suit for anything, whether it's frivolous or not. Mm-hmm. But this notion of transformation with fair use, I think, is absolutely key. Um, so, I have almost never applied for permission to quote.
1: That's what I—that's <laughs> what I thought people would be interested in hearing because. You uh, you have a very uh, uh, bold view of this. I, I must say I agree with you. I mean, as a lawyer myself, I um, I think everything is in whether or not uh, the work of the biographer truly transforms the original copyrighted work. Uh, if one is simply uh, reprinting the copyrighted work, uh, uh, that's different from yes. uh, from putting it in the context of some sort of an analysis. Uh, and it's critical that it be transformed. I I completely agree with you.
0: One of the things that uh, lawyers have told me, too, is that uh, copyright is judge-made law. In other words, if you ever actually were were, uh, sued, you are, to a great extent, dependent on a judge, how he interprets the principles of fair use Mm -hmm. and how he interprets the law. And, of course, judges make bad decisions as well as good decisions, But one of the things I can tell you that almost never works anymore is if someone takes you in court and says, well, you quoted, your book is, if you took my Faulkner book, it's almost a half a million words, the two volumes. And I I didn't even ever bother to count anything that I quoted from Faulkner. That is the number of words. Mm -hmm. But let's just say someone in a suit against me said, well, you quoted 5,000 words out of William Faulkner. Mm -hmm. The reply would be, do you know how many words Faulkner wrote? (laughs) five thousand is a drop in the bucket come on yeah and judges are not persuaded (laughs) by this at all anyone who goes into court now and says you're damaging i'm not going to be able to sell falker is going to be laughed out of court yeah it's just absurd and yet (laughs) publishers act like oh over 300 words you're really you know you're really asking for it no you're not
3: yeah
1: that's uh, and publishing contracts of course require authors to uh to give assurance that, or perhaps even warranties that uh, uh, that they have not breached copyright, it's a very it, it's a very onerous uh, obligation.
0: It sounds terrible when you look at the contract. It's all on you because, yeah. of course, the the contracts are written in the publisher's favor.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I, I I think we could talk about fair use in greater detail uh, longer, but. Um, perhaps we can pass on to talk about the use of uh, photographs, uh, not just quotations, but photographs. How important are they uh, in the work? Um, now, you I've had the benefit of looking at several of, uh, of your works, and I think you both make effective use of photographs. But w- w- how, let's just talk about um, them generally. Carol, do you want to begin? H- how did you... Uh, Decide, for example, in Alice Adams on the selection of photos, because I, in there, in that book, we find uh, uh, Alice as a young girl holding a doll, and then we see uh, another photograph of her as a middle-aged woman, looking really very, uh, very engaging, uh, and then there are several photographs of her uh, as she is uh, in in later middle age how did you uh, decide to include those and uh what was your uh, what was your thinking about that
2: uh the ones you've just described are five photographs that open the five sections of the book right so they're you know roughly distributed through her lifetime and um, i i think i had seen that in some other book and very much wanted it. Um, my, no, I think
1: I, I think it's very effective because they're not just a batch of photos in one part of the book, but each of those photos is critical to what you're talking about. Uh, very close to them,
2: and it, and it turns out to be very inexpensive to to do it that way. Those are like embedded. I also have some embedded photos in that book. Uh, mm-hmm it's it's not expensive for them to print them in that way uh you know within the text or on a a page in the text uh i don't remember how i chose them i had access to a a good number of photos so uh, you know i tried to choose the best ones that would give the sense of her throughout her lifetime um Yeah, I think each one, and most of those photos are probably discussed in the text. Yes, as they are. Well. No. Yeah. But I, yeah, I wish I'd been able to do that for the Carver book. No one suggested it and I hadn't thought of it. Um, but I also love photo insets. I mean, when I look at, at biographies in a bookstore, well, I haven't been in a bookstore for a couple of years, but, uh, you know, I used to just stand and look at the photos first. Yeah. And what I, tried to do in the photo insert sections of both books was have that give a kind of a synopsis of the book using captions that told the story mm-hmm. obviously very briefly but uh, and in most and I do have pictures of other people like maybe the parents or mm-hmm. yes very yeah. important close friends but I but I tried to have you know good pictures that really showed my subject's face or whoever it was you know sometimes you see these pictures that that really don't tell you very much and you're not sure why they're there but i think it's important to choose pictures yes. that really convey something
1: carl in your uh, in your work uh you, you've, you use a lot of photos as well and i must say that uh in um, the last days of sylvia plath for example. Uh, the photo of uh, of Asia Weevil is is an incredible photo. I mean, yes, she, <laughs> it's an amazing photo. Do you agree? With her? She looks very exotic and you can sort of understand Ted Hughes' attraction to her. It's a, it's a, yeah. a, a great photo.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I, I really lucked out because uh, as robust as I am in my interpretation of fair use, you do have to be careful with photographs. Uh, because they're, they're' you know they're either controlled by estates or um, uh, photographers uh, the person who took the picture and what can you say in terms of transformation you know I'm not going to give it a different color or yeah. uh, a caption is not going to be enough to say I've transformed the photograph by any means so you do need to get permission from those but I was fortunate with with uh, Osseous photograph because, uh, I was able to um, uh, get permission through a, a collection, you know, an ar- archival collection mm-hmm. uh, that that didn't um, uh, didn't require me to 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 do anything more than that. Uh, and I've often looked for those opportunities. It was true with Faulkner too. I did pay for some photographs. There's a Coalfield Collection at the University of Mississippi, and they're they're very into policing how those photographs are used. And I did I did pay for a couple of photographs from them. But when I can, I work with archives who leave it up to me as to you know what what to determine the copyright if they don't know what the copyright is, or they'll direct me to the copyright owner. I also um, agree with Carol that the photographs can tell a story. It's hard for me to see, even online, you know, people can look at those photographs. It's hard for me to see the biographies have been published without photographs, but I think it's a mistake. Uh, I think the photographs really are the reader's way into the book when they're browsing through it or thinking about it. Uh, and if the photographs tell a story, as I think my photographs do in a number of my biographies, uh, the thing I do then, the next step besides doing the book and the photographs, is I do a book trailer, and it's often based on the photographs in the book.
1: Well, oh, describe a book trailer. You, you...
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's like a movie trailer. It's mm-hmm. like a preview of coming attractions. Uh, you can you can concentrate on the dramatic parts of a book. Uh, in Faulkner's case, I did a trailer, which was almost uh, a kind of a Star Wars beginning, mm-hmm. because he had this great grandfather who loomed as a kind of, um, well, he was a luminary in the family. He too had been a novelist and uh, had fought in the Civil War and was this important ancestor. Mm-hmm. And so I, I show that. Uh, through the book trailer, uh, I, I move, uh, I take my photographs and give you almost like a kind of tour of his marble uh, statue, um, and I take you through, you know, certain important events and people in his life.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think uh, we've all agreed that photos are, are vital, um, and uh, I guess it's a question of securing permission, who pays the fees? Uh, you are the publisher. I think in most contracts, the, uh, the author is required to pay uh, the fees. Um, but let's move along to the question of, uh, of I'm, I'm calling them witnesses, uh, but I'm, I really mean people who are able to uh, give evidence to you uh, about what took place uh, with respect to the biographical figure. How do you rank the importance of, uh, of witnesses to, uh, to documents, for example? Uh, what do you think, Carol?
2: It depends. I'm sure each book is different. It depends on what's available to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written about people who have survivors. Uh, there were more for Carver because he died at the age of 50. So mm-hmm. lots of people who knew him were still alive, and I hustled around as much as I could to interview them uh, you know starting with people who knew his parents uh, so, I mean you you interview the oldest people first <laughs> it's kind of, kind yeah. of simple to figure that out um, and documents will probably still be there so uh, it's not so matter so much a matter of what's more important but you know you need to get to people while well, right. you can uh, with Alice Adams, uh, I learned some lessons. Well, I don't think I learned a lesson, but I was given lessons <laughs> <laughs> that uh, when you're someone who you died at the age of 70 and you're writing about it 20 years later, her friends are going to be 90. And oh. that is a tough. Uh, I spent a lot of time sitting with people who didn't really remember all that much. Um, <laughs> uh, but in some cases, it's still worthwhile. You, you can see their house or look at their picture albums and, and, uh, and things like that. Uh, but often at that age, for many people, their memories have settled into stories that they just repeat. And it's, it's, you have to dig a bit to get beyond that. Right.
1: Do you uh, typically use uh, tape recording? Do you uh, uh, or do you take notes? Or how do you how do you remember <laughs> what a
2: I tape record,
1: and you yeah. advise that you advise the person you're tape recording, and
2: yeah, if you're face to face, you just uh, you know it's part of the process that you get the thing out and you ask them, and of course, if they say no, you then you have to take notes, but right. uh, and I usually just ask them on the tape. I don't have them sign anything,
1: so you don't actually have them sign a release. You just but acknowledge it. That's a good idea, uh, Carl. What about you? Uh, you obviously have done a lot of uh, witness interviewing, if I can put it that way. Yes. What what tips do you have? What uh, how do how do you approach it?
0: Well, um, first of all, and a lot of biographers will say this, and journalists will say that, let people talk. Yeah. Don't interrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can ask questions, of course, but sometimes you may be tempted. You know, they'll tell you something you know which isn't so, or. You have a follow up question. You'll you'll get to the follow up question eventually, but it's it's uh, it's really important to to let people talk. And I found if you let them talk, they gain in confidence too. If you're simply nodding your head and listening to them, and they realize you're engaged, uh, in some cases at least they begin to really enjoy the process, mm-hmm. and and they want to do that um, as opposed to uh, documents, of course. Scholars love documents because they, they seem to be fixed. You know, uh, someone will say, "Well, I could I couldn't do a biography if I didn't have letters." You know, how can you write about a movie star or someone who may not have a journal or letters? And uh, in, in it's all interviews. It's usually been a mix in my case. Even with um, uh, actors, uh, they have written. There are documents, there are records, as well as the interviews. Um, they're they're both important. Um, quick story. A long time ago, I attended a talk by a a biographer of Marianne Moore. Uh, This is not Linda Level. Uh, This is someone who did an earlier biography of Marianne Moore. So I don't want anybody to think I'm talking about her. And he gave a talk, nice talk. And then somebody, one of the biographers in the room said, well, you haven't said anything about interviews. And it was almost like there was a bad smell in the room. He said, interviews? They're so messy. (laughs) And it's true. But think about that for a moment. That's the point. The point is that those letters are not the last word. You know, they just happen to be written down. Mm -hmm. What you're dealing with is very unstable material. And what people tell you and what people write, you have to check them against each other. And and the records, you know, Michael Foote told me, you know, his wife was born in 1914. She wasn't. She was born in 1911, as, as I could easily find out from, you know, from records. Uh, people have these cherished ideas. And it, and you're not at their mercy by any means. Not simply by the what you can ask them in the interview, but what you can find out from other people and from other records. Mm-hmm. And Carl, Triangulating you... things. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Carl, do you tape record?
0: I do almost always. Uh, my first biography, Marilyn Monroe, I did mostly notes, mm-hmm. um, it, it, but but I quickly learned the notes were good. But sometimes you really like to quote people, mm-hmm. and I hate even from even though I knew shorthand, I hated to do it just from, from verbatim notes, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact. I'm going to do an article about that because there was a famous journalist who interviewed Faulkner and Faulkner made some very controversial comments and in the uh, interviewer said, well, I have verbatim notes and that's good, uh, but recordings would be better. Mm-hmm.
1: And do you obtain releases from the subjects of the interview?
0: Never. I've uh-huh. never done that. I right. think there's an implied consent there. I, I, I often tell people who I interview uh, you know, uh, I'll let you look at the material. Uh, it's my book. I'll certainly take on board any, any questions uh, uh, or criticisms you have. Um, but in the end, I, I have to be, you know, they know this going in. Uh, and they know it's going to be in a book. Uh, and no, I've never, I've never done releases.
1: And so uh, uh, do you allow uh, interview subjects to review the manuscript and make comments? Is that your practice?
0: Um, I will show them parts of the manuscript. I don't turn the book over to them. Right. Uh, and I've been very fortunate with people uh, that they have, sometimes I have gotten something wrong and they'll correct the record. No one has ever actually asked me to change the content of the story. The funniest thing that ever happened to me was Diana Trilling uh, started rewriting what she said, not to change it in, in terms of you know the content, but mm-hmm. to make it sound better on the page. <laughs> and I thought that was okay. Yeah. And in fact, what she did is I gave her a whole chapter, which you know, included other things besides her. And she got carried away and she started correcting other parts of the chapter. And she said, <laughs> Mr. Rollison, she called me Mr. Rawlson. We got to know each other quite well. But she said, Mr. Rawlson, I'm sorry, I got carried away your prose as well as mine. And I said, that's okay. You made it better.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, and what about you, Carol? Is it your practice to invite interview subjects to review the manuscript or their, their contributions and make comments?
2: Uh, it's not my practice to invite them, but I've had a number of people who were insecure for so, and I would offer that. And uh, and you really have to remember to follow through with those people mm-hmm. when you're writing. Uh, and I always have, and it's always turned out to be helpful. Uh, I've had the same experience as Carl with some uh, New York editors who wanted to rewrite things for me. Uh, that's usually helpful, but uh, sometimes not because they're seeing a small part of your book you've got a whole book to think about um yeah uh, often people will tell you more when they see that you know that they didn't explain something the way they wanted to so mm-hmm. i've never had any i've had occasions where people argued later with things they said or the way i put them in context but Uh, It was only in the case of Gordon Lish in the Raymond Carver book. And it it didn't surprise me that Gordon Lish wanted to keep transforming his view of things as, as it all went forward. Uh, Most people are trying to help you if they've initially agreed to be interviewed.
3: Right.
1: Well, I'm going to change the subject slightly to the question of, uh, Authorized versus unauthorized biographies. Um, now, Carl, I know you've done uh, you've done both types, I think. Uh, and, Carol, I'm not sure about wh- whether your biographies were authorized. Do you want to start off talking about authorized or unauthorized biographies, and what are the concerns?
2: Well. Yeah, we probably should discuss the terms a bit, but uh, neither of mine was authorized in the strict sense of the word, Uh, and I would not write an authorized biography. I I think that puts you in service of the subject or the estate or someone other Mm -hmm. than yourself, and I would never do that. Uh, I think it's a big mistake, and we could cite many examples of where it's turned out to be a mistake. I did have lots of cooperation from Alice Adams' son. Uh, in fact, we had a written agreement that uh, that he would cooperate, that he intended to cooperate but that he would not interfere. And, and I thought that was good. I'm glad we did it in writing, although no problems ever arose. But uh, authorized, you know, that's that's almost like you've been hired to write the book. You may not be paid, but it's it's still, uh, I think, tying yourself to something you don't want to be tied to. I, I'm guessing Carl feels the same way, but we'll find out, huh. Yeah,
0: Carl, what do you think? Yes, I, I agree with what Carol says. although um, I've never done an authorized biography, at least what I would call one, um, that is, you know, the bio- the idea of the biography originates with me. I don't then go to try to you know i don't contact an estate or a family and and ask for any sort of permission whatsoever um i've been very fortunate uh in the case of rebecca west and dana andrews and walter brennan that all their their families were cooperative mm-hmm. um i did show the manuscript to dana andrews's children uh, mm-hmm. other than a few corrections They knew going in that you know I was not going to change things just because they wanted something changed. Um, I that the same was true with Rebecca West, with Walter Brennan. Uh, his family didn't even want to look at the book before it was published. Uh, and and I've never had any sort of written agreement with with anybody at all. And of course, I've dealt with as as Carol has with, with hostile estates and subjects, I've done living figures. Susan Sontag was very hostile mm-hmm. uh, and sicked a law firm on me. I did the book with my wife, who is an attorney. And the publisher knew, W.W. W. Norton knew going in that this probably would be a difficult case, but we just stood by what we did and and uh, were, were able to accomplish our purpose in writing that biography. Um, it's even, even in cases where... Uh, it's difficult, I think, for biographers. Uh, I've heard this from some biographers who owe something, in a sense, to the family. You know, you get access, and therefore you owe something to that family. Um, I don't do that. You know, in other words, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that obligation, and right. I don't think Carol does either.
1: One of the one of your works, Carl, that I've uh, that I really enjoyed was uh, your biography of Michael Foot because he's sort of an old hero of mine. Uh, and that, you had a very interesting experience there because you were, you were li- living in Foote's house uh, and, and interviewing him. And I think that uh, the interviews that you subsequently relied upon in the, uh, in the biography were acquired while you were actually doing a, a work on his wife. That's right.
0: That's right. And in fact, uh, uh, met some members of Michael's family and his friends interpreted the fact that I was staying in the house and I traveled with Michael to his hometown of Plymouth. I traveled to Dubrovnik. I traveled to his constituency in Wales. They thought, in a sense, um, if you've seen the movie Unforgiven, that I was kind of the house biographer, so to speak, that I wasn't my own person. And they were absolutely shocked when they found out you know, that I simply couldn't be budged, that I wasn't going to fudge details, that I wasn't going to, you know, uh, overlook things or delete things from the book. In fact, his nephew said, Carl, you've abused Michael's hospitality. Wow. To, you know, I didn't I didn't respond to him because I didn't think anything I could say to him would would help. Uh, but, you know, Michael knew going in and he, he actually said to me, it's your book. And that didn't mean that he didn't try to manipulate me. He did. But it didn't work.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Carol, let me ask you this: um, when you when you're writing a biography, um, uh, what is your responsibility to the, to the subject of the biography? Do you feel that you owe them something, or do you owe the family something, or or is your is your allegiance only to the truth?
2: Um, I would say the truth or the fullest version of that that i can create within the confines of the book i'm trying to write Uh, that doesn't mean it has to. you know we talked about this at the beginning with plath you're not going to include everything but uh Uh yeah um with with alice adams uh i mean one of the many things that were was painful for her son was to find out that he probably had a sibling whom or a half sibling whom she aborted, he didn't know that. Mm. He, he was very disturbed about that. Uh, mm. But it was an important fact about her life. He didn't want it left out of the book, so he, he never uh, questioned what I put in the book. But, you know, it was a painful thing for him to find out. I guess that's, you know, that's one kind of thing.
1: I expect that in doing uh, research, uh, a biographer often comes across things that family members may be unaware of or that the subject of the biography may not wish to have had uh, ex- ex- explored or uh, publicized.
2: Raymond Carver's brother and his son both told me that they learned so much about him from the book, you know, that they were, they were grateful for that it helped huh. them understand some difficult things that had happened in their lives. And Carl
1: what about you what, what is the responsibility of the biographer to the subject of the of the biography or to its to their family or
0: Yeah, for me, for me it's 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 Carol's answer and mm-hmm. I'll we're just about running out of time unfortunately. We may have to do a third show. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that my responsibility is to the truth. I've had the same experience. Members of the family coming to me and saying, "I didn't know that." People often tell the you know say about biographers, "How could they know? They weren't there." You can actually know things that the people who were there don't know, and I think I'll leave it at that.
1: Uh, well, shall we? Uh, we are running out of time, and I, I have I have a lot of questions here, and I must I think some of them are quite interesting. Uh, so. A, a yet another
0: episode
1: we may have to do another episode what do you think yes Harry? yes um, let's,
0: let's
2: it's okay let's with me oh,
0: okay, okay. <laughs> all right we'll we'll talk about a date and uh, we're gonna sign off now and thank you everyone for listening
1: thank you thank, thank you me. thank you carl
0: talk soon bye-bye
1: bye